Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape, Conversations on Mythology, with Chris Thompson at storyarchaeology.com. In the third of these conversations, I get to talk with Australian artist Claire Millage. Hello everyone, today I'm talking with Claire Millage, an artist from Sydney who is currently presenting an installation, Rivas, at the 23rd Biennale of Sydney. But before we talk about the exhibition, Claire, tell us something about yourself. Oh, hi Chris, it's uh, lovely to be here, thank you for having me on. I'm an Australian artist and I was born in 1977. I grew up in a um, sort of fairly remote bush environment with no electricity uh, and my parents are ecologists and I, um, I now work in an art school in Sydney, University of New South Wales Arts um, Design and Architecture and um, I work pretty much full-time as an artist and academic. I work between the lands of the Arakwal and Wijibul Weeable people of the Bunjalung Nation, that's up in northern New South Wales, um, where I grew up, and the lands of the Garigal, Bidjigal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in Warang or Sydney. That's absolutely fascinating. And and now you've told me that you were brought up by ecologists without in a place without electricity, right out in the outback a bit, or a bit back, if <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, it, that explains a lot about the, the way that your work comes across. So let's talk about the current exhibition, A Well at the Bottom of the Sea. I could really engage with the website description of your work, even if I just read a few words from that description. Claire re-examines contemporary environments with a focus on our engagement with ecology through art, in particular through the use of the historical figure of the artist shaman. Now, there are a lot of intriguing and exciting ideas to unpack just in this opening paragraph. Yes, so that uh, description is um, the way that I would normally try to, to sum up my work, but um, as I mentioned before, I sort of grew up with this with this background in ecology, sort of infused through my existence. So I think that the way that I present the work reflects that as well. Like I have quite a, a grungy aesthetic, I would say, which I struggled with a lot at art school. <laughs> I often had teachers telling me my work was too grubby or, you know, dirty, etc., or that I just kind of needed to clean it up or pull it together or it's extremely complex but I do find that a way that I can work with materials in a very process-based way but also in a very responsive way so the installations do often become very complex and very collaborative very much I suppose about the way that we as humans engage with ecology and my interest in the artist shaman was my interest in what you know, the role of the artist was and kind of going back and looking at, you know, what people had been describing as the first art forms and lots of arguments, you know, in particular um, Georges Bataille and his sort of writing about cave art and people like Jean Klotz about whether these artworks, these early artworks were shamanistic, whether they had these ideas, but really kind of what it all came back to was that, there were ways of communicating with the environment 
and ways of looking at the environment and using art to mediate between the human world and the other world, whatever that world is. And that's often sort of, I suppose, an animal or plant world, you know. Mm. And of course, that was very much the role of the the poet in the old Irish stories, to stand on the edge and keep those two worlds in balance so that there is a flow of creativity and fertility. And of course, one of the jobs of the of the shaman was also to create a, a transformative experience to allow other people to see things in a way that they might not otherwise see them. And I think that's very much the role of the artist. No, that's brilliant. And I gather that you I gather that you work in a wide variety of mediums as well. Yeah, I certain things that I stick with. So the one medium that people often describe my work as as using is um hinterglass malari, which is an old form of folk painting. I think it has Byzantine origins, but basically what it means is behind glass painting. And I sort of fell upon it by accident, but it's become uh, the best <laughs> the best way for me to paint for some reason. And I like the fact that it has these spiritual connotations that you can have light behind it, that there's this sort of passage. Uh, and not I don't always have light behind the glass I sometimes have more opaque but I found it to be a very interesting sort of surface to work on and this sort of way of working back into something so that's that's one medium that I'm I'm sort of using quite a lot but then I'm also using a lot of process-based materials lots of recycled textiles lots of biodegradable things waxes uh, shipping ropes performances costume and because I'm working with a lot of collaborators uh, at the moment and maybe not even at the moment but when I think about it sound has always been a very strong component although it's not something I work directly with but I always engage um, sound artists uh, to work with in these projects so there's often quite a lot of, of stuff going on in these installations that I'm making and they're kind of like mini worlds I suppose that you might move into that's what I was thinking it sounds as you describe it from the images that I've seen and things you sent me it seems such an immersive atmosphere and I think it, it's, it's a lot of complexity but it's really interesting exciting and I suspect that you could be in that space on several different occasions and and have a a different experience yeah, well, in this installation, you, you quite literally would because because the soundtrack is never the same for the entirety of the of the piece. But yeah, it's something that you probably do need to spend um, quite some time with to fully experience. And the other thing that I I didn't really mention is language and text, and that's a huge sort of uh, interest for me. Everything from the magical naming of things, you know, the naming of plants the naming of animals, the naming of or the way that words have multiple meanings and, and their providence. And that's sort of how I came across the story archaeologists was actually sort of down one of those rabbit warrens of, um, of language and, you know, finding that podcast that you and his older had made about um, quite early on. Mm. I gather you you became you were interested in Robert Graves' work, as it were, that con 
connection, that early connection between language and poet, poetry and the old stories and uh, symbolism and other world experience, which is all there in it, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, look, that's such a funny book. It is. So I had it when I was 16. <laughs> I had it when I was 16. I must, I don't know, I must have been my mum's book or something. Anyway, I was quite interested in magic mushrooms, I think, at the time. And so I'd found, when I went, and I've, I've got the same book that I've had since I was, you know, quite young. And when I went back and had a look at it, I was looking for something, you know, quite a few years ago now. I, I realised that I'd underlined all this stuff about Dionysus and um, mushroom cults. <laughs> I was like, I said to my friend, What's, what is all this stuff? And he was like, mushrooms. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, God. Yeah, it's a long time ago. I must have discovered Robert Graves, I think, because of I, Claudius and so on, of my love of history. And then I discovered um, that, that, that that particular book. Yeah, I must have been about the same age when it influenced me. And it, 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 I, it was a good starting point, although I think we've all moved on and the river has flowed in many different directions since. Yeah. Well, there's sort of... I. <laughs> Gone. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say this. I mean, I guess with with Robert Graves is is one of the things that's so fascinating is he takes connections between things and patterns to a point of it's kind of on the verge of madness almost. You know, so the way that he draws everything together into things where he kind of constructs these worlds for himself, it's it's quite a fascinating book. I return to it. I still return to it, and I think, oh wow, it's very dense. <laughs> It's it's very I, it it is it's it's um it influenced me when I was very young but it's it is I think it's a wonderful book of poetry but you're right he takes his arguments and his symbolism to the point of absurdity a beautiful glorious absurdity but there's you know it's a good it's a good starting point yeah it is it is. I was delighted when you got in contact with me last year. We met on Zoom. It was a huge pleasure to discover that Shillings River flowed so far, right across the planet, to another place where there's an even older lore of place names, and which is still very much central and alive. And I think that was I could see. And then it's no, there's no direct connection, but it was just that feeling that there was Shillin in a place that, in some ways, I uh, held in awe when I visited. Yeah, it was it was quite odd for me because I stumbled across the podcast looking for something about Olam and as soon as I began listening to to the podcast series and I think the I think it's actually the second episode that that Shinnan is the center central figure I just got sucked in straight away and I had the, I had the podcast on for about just relentlessly I really was pulled into this whole idea of a story in the landscape and multiple stories and the fact that a lot of the figures in the landscape weren't gods and goddesses but actually living and and the stories being retold over and over again. And I knew that I had Irish ancestry, so I suppose part of it, you know, (laughs) wanting to kind of find something like some kind of, desire for ancestral ecological connection well i think it, it really is an ecological connection when we re-looked and when Isolda and i went back to shin and looked at her later and we were able to get more information and suddenly the story kind of shifted and 
in its original form. It's about the creation of a new land. It really is a true Dindyanaka story. And she really is the, if you like, the archetypal shaman artist in that story. It's uh, an it's it's quite interesting to see how and the fish the fish recognize her too that's you know i find that very interesting as well that when she gets to the well and you know and i've told this story numerous times to people usually at the point that i start talking about the hazelnuts being chewed and the bubbles floating up in spirals through the water they start looking at me a bit funny but <laughs> but i'm always very taken by that moment yeah the line, all the lovely bubbles rose, is actually a direct translation. But what I think is, uh, going back to what you said before, and is that I think it helps to take the story out of that sort of, shall we say, neoclassical veneer that was laid on it over in the late 19th century. And they're not just, oh, the Irish version of uh, classical gods and goddesses. No, they are... They are the sort of ancient ancestor figures. Yeah. Think of the Japanese kami. You know, they, they are the spirits inherent in an imminent landscape. They're both real and not real. They are in the other world, which is there and not there. So I tend to think of it as the world of creativity and imagination. They are the, 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 the symbols, such strong symbols that they are absolutely real, but they're nothing like classical gods and goddesses. No, not at all. No, and, and that really kind of spoke to me, I suppose. I just sort of also really fascinated by the connections between, um, you know, agriculture and the land, and then in particular this idea of the role of the poet and truth-telling and if you don't listen to your poets, if you don't listen to your artists, then the world that you know, the fertility of the land, everything will become destroyed and, and <laughs> the, the land will die without that. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of important at the moment. It's kind of important, and the voices of the wells as well. Yeah, it's it's all of these very strong ecological messages, and even you know down to these things about passing good judgment. And there was that one example which I've forgotten, but you'll probably remember of one particular character. And one of the famous judgments was that it had to be a very balanced judgment. So they didn't want, you know, they said, "Oh no, that's too much of a reparation." You can't give that much back. I think it was something to do with agricultural cycles. I think you're thinking of Bresh. He has to win his life back and he offers that he can give them two harvests every year. And they say, no, 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 one harvest is, is enough. And then you have this weird judgment where he says, I will tell you that you have to sow on a Tuesday and reap on a Tuesday, harvest on a Tuesday. And nobody knows that what, what it means, but I think it's to do with just balance it. You can't ask for too much, but you've got to keep the harmony there. And in the Irish pre-Norman law, there are laws that govern, what was I going to say, govern trees and the, the penalties for damaging trees were quite high. And there's that sense of you keeping in balance, it'll go on working for you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I think some of these stories have quite an ecological message for us now. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of rung quite true. You know, when I look at the Australian landscape here, because I often look at it through the eyes of my ecologist upbringing. I mean, I'm not an ecologist, but everything that we everything that my parents talk about constantly is to do with oh you know this is changing or that's changing or they took too much here or you can't do that like this or you know 
all of these things and looking at the amount of damage that's happened that is still happening in this country through deforestation and, you know, just complete disrespect for the laws that were here before is is quite devastating, you know, especially looking at the climate change catastrophe that's happening at the moment. So all of these stories and things seem very relevant to me and very powerful. So I felt very connected to them when I was, was listening to them and also the way that you and Isolde kind of pulled them apart because there's a story there but there's also this academic and scientific kind of analysis as well coming in. So it's a very nice combination, I thought. Now, you were talking about the two versions of the story of Shinnan that were on the podcast. And yet there were several years between the first, when we were just looking at the um, the, the story that was Okari's story and how that had misled people. And then we looked again, we had a feeling that this story in the Dinhianicus told a very, very ancient story of a tsunami wave that, that may have come across the land. And we knew that there was a theory that this had actually happened off the west coast of Ireland. Yet it was so hard to get the longevity of stories accepted. If it wasn't written in the text, then there was no evidence for it. And I think what really helped us was work by other, really research by other people, including a rather remarkable um, professor working in Australia. And his name is Professor Patrick Nunn, and he was working with... Um, uh, Nick Reed, who's Associate Professor of the School of Behavioural, Cognitive and Social Scientists in New England. But Professor Nunn is a Professor of Oceanic Geoscience, who has a research fellowship professorship at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And he's really important because he was one of those scientists who shared the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize to the Intergovernmental Planet Panel on Climate Change. But you were talking about more research. I just went to look back at what he's done since. And in 2019, he brought out a book called The Edge of Memory, Ancient Stories, Oral Tradition and the Post-Glacial World. Now, I haven't read that, but I really intend to do so. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So I'll put links on the site. And I'm looking forward to reading that book too. Yeah, I mean, I think it just it, it's, so, it's such an interesting thing to you know for people to realize and to try to it's it's very difficult I think for a lot of people to understand and to kind of respect that important knowledge and truthful knowledge can be held in these oral stories and can be held in these ways of recording information that don't necessarily fit in with sort of westernized writing it down and and recording it like that and it's kind of wonderful this to have this research done and to know that these things are actually have like records in in other places but it's also kind of a little sad as well that we we can't just um take these stories and take this knowledge and um give it the respect <laughs> that that a book might have you know it's hard isn't it well it, it is interesting because there are t- I mean, things are changing rapidly now, but the traditional approach of anthropologists and um, philologists has been that you need to provide evidence, and that is important. But I find it interesting that it's a, a geographer, a professor of geoscience, has created a world in which the longevity of the stories can be accepted, and he's given us the evidence and is now writing books on this. And I think that's that helps with working and interpreting 
ancient stories. In his original article, he said that he thought possibly that you could only find this longevity in Australia. And Isolde and I said, well, we think you can find it in Ireland too, which again has very ancient stories. And I think Shinnan is one of those that may hold the echo of a memory of a story that could go right back to Mesolithic times. Well, there's always something new to find out, isn't there? That's right. You know, it's just also like reinforces the importance of stories too. There's always so much more in a story, you know, and we have to kind of um, give those give those stories more attention and more respect. Oh, yeah. Well, as humans, this is our great legacy. That, that, you know, when we began to tell stories as a species, it gave us that sense of connection and history depth. And just in the ways it says the Tour de Donnan became people when they became the people of crafts, I think humans became humans when they began to create stories. I think they're that important. So, yeah, I mean, I still listen to them. <laughs> but it is true. These stories back at the end of the in the so-called Celtic twilight, they needed a, a national narrative with big heroes and a lot of the, the a lot of the t- stories of the women were overlooked or not accepted because the women were a little too free and oh what would lady gregory say so a lot of stuff wasn't even translated i do think the ecological message was kind of overlooked and it's now the time to bring that out of the stories but look we better move on. I was so much hoping that I would make it to Sydney sometime between March and June, but the pandemic has created so many divergent tributaries. But I have enjoyed the photos you sent. This would be a good opportunity to, well, would you walk us through the exhibition in words, please? Certainly, certainly. So the exhibition, so Rebus is the name of, of the whole Biennale itself. It goes across like a bunch of different venues. The venue that my work is at is actually down at, at Pier 23. And so when you go into the space, it's a, it is literally a pier. It's a very old wooden pier. And um, there's a lot of theatre companies and things down there. But uh, there's this one big space right at the end. And it's got very tall wooden columns and beautiful openings at the side where you can see out onto the harbour area the light is also very nice so it has this like very ambient feel to it and what I really attracted me about the site and I actually specifically asked if I could go there because it, it has this slightly magical quality to it uh, where it feels like there's a stage the pier is like a stage floating over the water so I really like that idea. And so uh, everything that about the installation of my part of the installation is based on this idea of, I suppose, translucency and light and suspension. So when you come into the big the big room, there's lots of other artworks around, which I unfortunately don't have time to, to describe. But when you do come in, you see a long rectangular prism, which is made from a very, very light silk, which has been hand-dyed with indigo plant. And each panel is uh, six metres long. And so the one side of the rectangular prism is 12 metres and the other's um, six metres. And then you can go inside. There's like four entranceways. And when you go inside this, you can't really see from the outside exactly what's in there, but you can see these huge, big, thick shipping ropes that are popping up over the top of the the blue silk prism so you, you kind of know something's in there you can see some silhouettes but when you go inside at one end 
there's some very large sort of glass paintings that are directly um, referencing the story of Shinnan. So there's one called Philid, which is about the poets, which is sort of like this geometric owl <laughs> kind of painting. And then there's, um, I won't describe them all, we don't really have time, but another one is, um, is Tannen Lider cracking or opening or pulling apart poem and that's quite hard to describe but it's almost like a it's a diptych of um, this very dark indigo blue with this sort of crackling star and uh, sort of moon formations coming in and then another one is some sort of pale legs um, in water in dark dark water uh, with a, a very pale pink moon behind them and there's two of those paintings almost the same and that's sort of referencing Shinnan and and perhaps diving down into this well to meet these I'm not sure if that ever happened but it was sort of my take on on remembering diving into beautiful rock pools when I was a kid the well is below the water so you've got this this sort of it's extremely uh, sort of limbic area a well at the bottom of the sea is is kind of doubling up the imagery. Yeah, it's very paradoxical. Yeah. And so then we also have uh, nine old metal cauldrons, which are also suspended in a very rough shape, which is supposed to, they're supposed to stand in for the nine magical musical hazel trees that surround the well where the, the nuts fall off into the water. And so they all have these, kind of like archaeological digs of debris and stuff that you might find on the forest floor, but particularly like a contemporary forest floor, I think. So there's bits of things I've pulled out of the garden, like old dogs' toys and stuff that previous owners have <laughs> left there. And so, yeah. That, that is a perfect um, symbol, the, the cauldron, which contains like, the wisdom of the hearth. I think it's a wonderful symbol for that sense of the tree with its roots and the nuts which contain all the wisdom of the world in the cauldron and the hearth. That, that is something, yeah, that, that's extremely interesting. Anyway. But they sort of hold something, yeah. But, you know, it's also this idea of combining things together as well. And I, I do think that, for me, also the story of Shinnan, it's a feminist story. It's it's the story of a woman who who ta- who goes somewhere seeking inspiration, and she's recognised by the fish. She doesn't need to take the, take the fish or stir anything up or whatever. So she's recognised by the land. The water is released, but that also she gives it to the community. She has a right to be there, an authority to be there, which is why I took issue with the Okari story, which is based on the Boan story, the idea that it's the disobedient woman who dares to take the lid off a well. Oh, the naughty woman. <laughs> the disobedient woman. <laughs> There's a version of this story in Fina where a woman took the lid off the well and it flowed and the only way they could t- t- stop it was to take a scythe and cut her feet off. Well, it goes against this whole respect for women and fertility. So Yeah, so it's a very strong feminist. It's a very strong feminist story, I think. And those those later stories are really perversions of the whole story. <laughs> and I didn't know that when I first discovered the story. Yeah, well, that's, I guess, that's why I found it so interesting listening to, um, I listened to the, the first podcast series that you made mythical women and then i really enjoyed going back and listening again to the 
revisiting ones when when you already researched a whole lot of other stories and then you came back in with this new knowledge anyway go on we've I've, I've got in the way of you describing your exhibition go on oh no that's fine so when you so you're inside this this silk prism it's very lightweight and there's a lot of light passing through it and you've got the glass paintings that I've described and the big thick shipping ropes and hemp ropes coiled they're coiled all over the floor as well and they're they're actually the paintings are actually hanging off the shipping ropes using like a climbing knot actually it's quite precarious to be honest I kind of terrifies me when I look at it but <laughs> but it's still hanging up touch wood <laughs> it's only a month to go and uh, the knots are holding so I'm happy the glass paintings are framed in reclaimed local eucalyptus timber and the rope the rope hitches kind of pass through that timber and onto the um, gnarled rope so then that's sort of the visual side of things on the outside of it you've also got two hanging silk poems by the famous Wiradjuri uh, um, author and activist and artist Kippen Gilbert and they're kind of stories that were or poems sorry that were were written quite a long time ago he passed away in um, 93 and I think that the two on the outside um, one of them, I think, hadn't been published after he pa- until after he passed, and then the other one, I think, was um, a little earlier. But they're very kind of powerful works. And then we have on the inside of the installation, there's four speakers, and then you just have to bear with me because I'm just going to try and describe the sound in there because it's very complex. <laughs> The soundscape is uh, is something that it's hard to get from the from the pictures, obviously. So yes, it's very hard. So talk about the soundscape. Yeah, so the, so I wanted just to have like one underlying, very ambient, haunting kind of soundtrack for Shinnan, and I contacted Felicia Atkinson, who's a French experimental sound artist and very well renowned at the moment, and. And she was really happy to work on it, which was very exciting for me. I sent her lots of information. And, and so she's got this beautiful poem that she recites that comes in and out of marimba and piano, etc. And it's a very kind of uh, seductive almost, you know, is <laughs> the way to describe it. It really, when you listen to it, it really kind of draws you in. It's called Between the Tides. That's the English translation of um, the, the French title, which is Entre la Marie. And excuse my bad French pronunciation. Yeah, it does feel like the pull of the tide listening to it. So that's that's sort of playing, but then overlaid and connected to the tidal depth of the the harbour, like the live tidal depth, I guess. There's a track which is uh, randomly played fieldwork recordings that have been made of my mother, who's a botanist, and her good colleague, who's also a botanist. Two women who have been very very active in ecology and um, protecting forests and waterways and things um, that I've known in my life for a long time and often not given as much attention as men to be quite honest for the same reasons that um, we see we see this in other in other areas but there you can hear these kind of snippets of them talking so there's the more fieldwork recordings that you hear the more water is in Sydney Harbour so we've actually tied it up to the tidal data so sometimes you don't hear anything because the tidal depth is really low and then other times you do hear these things 
And then on top of all of that, every hour there's a feature track. So first one is a, a poem by Kevin Gilbert and it's um, it's got a very beautiful, rich voice. So it's really um, it's very powerful. And the second um, track is a poem by Tess Ellis, who is a Wiradjuri poet and wonderful gardener and close friend of mine. And she's written a poem about the Indigenous women who who have inspired her, but in particular in relation to the ocean as well. And it's a really beautiful poem. Yeah, so there's also a experimental poetry piece by uh, Snack Syndicate and sound artist Tom Smith and also a, a sort of pop folk song that Carla Del Forno has written who's quite a well-known pop and folk singer, probably more well-known in Europe than Australia, but that's where she came she comes from Australia. So I think I've got everybody in there. There's, there's so many collaborators. It sounds... It's amazing. I know you've sent me some audio to be able to put up a soundtrack, which will give a, at least a taste of what it feels like. I think it's it, it sounds brilliant. Yeah, it, you don't need to hear the whole thing even. Yeah. No, just a taste so that because it's more complex than the pictures actually demonstrate, although it looks beautiful. Yeah, but the sound really brings you in, I think. Yeah. It makes it immersive. It, it That's why I described it as a dramatic experience. I think it's great. When I mentioned that I'd hoped to visit the exhibition in Persian, that was a genuine possibility. As listeners to Story Archaeology will be aware, I kind of have a second home in Brisbane. You know, I have family there and uh, my son and my uh, grandchildren and my daughter-in-law. I've managed to spend a month or more in Australia annually now for 13 years. And of course, the pandemic has stopped all that, although I should get there later this year again. But I love visiting Australia and I I, I kind of, you know, I'm really, really missing it in the last couple of years. I did mention to you that I've been able to travel a bit. I mean, I've northeast Queensland, Northern Territories, Victoria. Yeah, and I got out to El Dorado. That was interesting. And of course, New South Wales, around Sydney and the Blue Mountains. Um, I must admit, it was the Blue Mountains that there was I had there was an experience there that really got me um we talk about landscape and fields and how they speak to you the Janolan caves that really got me because I suddenly found myself under the ground standing on stone that was too early to contain a single fossil and that really got me when I was told that I was standing on my feet were on stone that was there before the earliest story was told and yet I was in the middle of the longest and oldest story of all and that really kind of summed up how I felt about Australia when I got to visit but yeah I, I mean, now I know that you lived out in the bush with your ecologist parents you must have field sites that really speak to you too yeah I, I guess I mean Australia is such a big country <laughs> <laughs> so oh yeah it's <laughs> i'm sorry i've just i've just talked about places around an entire continent believe me i know i know it's a, it's a, it's i remember my mum saying to me about you know like we really have a, a little bit of everything here like in terms of 
vegetation scape, landscapes and there really is there's just so much mm. so many different types of, of forests and geologies and you know we have cold places and very dry places and it's all kind of here but I guess <laughs> very wet at the moment yeah I'm afraid and the, the thing is when I grew up um like it, where I grew up is on Buntalung country and that's um, northern New South Wales area and kind of close to the coast. We grew up in a subtropical rainforest at the bottom of a gully. <gasps> and so we were out in the bush all the time. It was retrospectively, it was pretty dark and cold, especially in winter and very humid. And, you know, I mean, we had a lot of floods, but we're used to, we were used to like roads washing away and things like that. But the, flood the level of the floods at the moment is just out of this world but but that that area is very special it's all built around um, old volcano like um, like the core of the volcano yeah so Wollumbin is the central that's the central core and then there's like a whole lot of like um, uh, almost like buttress roots on a tree or something for like geological formations like the glasshouse mountains no, no, I'm talking, yeah, so where I'm talking about is Wollumbin and the, the European name for that is um, Mount Warning and it's just sort of in from Byron Bay area. Oh, right. Yeah, I haven't spent that much time at the Glasshouse Mountains, but it's it is very spectacular. But go on, I won't interrupt you again. Go back to talking about... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about it in a way, but the... the the, the rainforest, like we were always in the forest, so it's quite wet. We spent, as children, all of our time pretty much in the creek, at the top of the creek where it's like quite small, like catching the yabbies and playing around with the rocks and things like that, and then um, going rapiding down the creeks like further lower down. Yeah, it's a very beautiful area and it's quite special and it's often like very high biodiversity in the area, which is why my parents moved up there in the 70s to study and to, to kind of be a part of that very biodiverse la- landscape. So there's lots of like Gondwanan plant species and, and all types of things. And they've done a massive bush regen project on the community that they moved to about 25 years ago, which is down at the coast. But at the place that we initially lived at was up in the hills there. So that became a very important part of my existence. So we had like, I guess, like lots of animals. We had fruit bats and snakes and parrots and possums and in the house with us, like that we were raising and, you know, <laughs> it was like pretty wild. You're painting a wonderful picture, and especially for me, because I actually do know where you're talking about. I have been there. And I've had the image in my head of my favourite places, the rainforest. I love the uh, the Queensland rainforest and New South Wales rainforests. And that's where I, f- I fell in love with that. And I can see the animals and the bats. Oh, my goodness, how I love the flying foxes. They are. Yeah, the fruit bats are so cute. Yeah. They are cute. They are. I know they, you know, they're a bit smelly and one shouldn't sort of stand underneath the trees. But nevertheless, they're definitely smelly. <laughs> well, they're not actually bats. No, they're, they're not. That's why I refer to them as flying foxes. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they are, they're spectacular. <laughs> they're lovely. We had two little baby ones that my mum was raising when we were kids. So 
We literally were very close to them. They would be like flying on your head and stuff all the time. I don't know what, like back in those days, I don't think we had like uh, vaccines against them, the virus. Like they didn't have those viruses then maybe or maybe it wasn't an issue, but, you know, like it is now. Although um, my dad is, all, you know, vaccinated against a lot of these these things now. Yeah, it was very, it was very kind of rich childhood in that regard. Oh, you're painting such a picture for me. So now I live down in, in Warren in Sydney and the the lands, the um, unceded Garrigal land is the land that I live on and that's uh, called sort of Avalon Beach in the, the European um, name and it's up near that sort of Pitwater Hawkesbury River area and it's also quite biodiverse here. There's like a big canopy of trees somebody told me because i was getting lots of tick bites because there's been so much wet weather they said oh it's the highest infestation of ticks in <laughs> concentration of ticks in australia and i was like okay well that explains it but um we're right here on the water and there's forest and water here together which you know i love it's a real it's a real kind of privilege to to be able to live in, in that landscape so yeah we, we live like in a it's not a tent, which is what I grew up in. It's a quite a different vibe. <laughs> I tell you, I've got such pictures in my head because I've missed Australia, uh, particularly Queensland and New South Wales, so much in the last couple of years that I'm suddenly going, oh, I want to be there. Oh, yeah, but it's it has been very difficult to... to I, I usually go to Europe. Like I have lots of friends in Norway and I usually go to Oslo every two years that's my thing I go up Berlin and Oslo and yeah I've been really missing that because I haven't been um, back there since 2019 which is god three years now it is yeah so um I've got a couple of of things coming up next but they're both actually reworkings of, of older work so I suppose that does happen quite a lot the first one is at Buxton Contemporary in Melbourne which is a uh, is an institution there, so collection connected with University of Melbourne down there, and that is an exhibition called Still Life that's been curated by Jacqueline Doughty, and the work that's in it is called Idathea, Immortal Clones of the Perlite Deposits, which actually specifically references the area that I did grow up in, and there was a, a very sort of famous uh, tree there called the Idathea Hardenbergia. I think, or Bergiana. Now I'm confused, but <laughs> don't look that one up. It's, it sort of reproduces itself through a kind of form of cloning, which is something that my mother's really interested in. So I've taken a lot of notes and things from um, when I was with ecologists in the area, and I put them all together and, and collated them into a series of poems, which I've painted onto stained glass and there's also all of these shards of an old dead tree that were in the place where my parents live and they're sort of been reassembled to kind of form a, a tree stump called hollow bearer which sort of references this the importance of um, hollow bearing trees for animals and for habitat etc so this used to be a hollow bearing tree but it fallen down and smashed and the shards of the tree will be returned back to the landscape once the exhibition is finished it was previously in my garden with water dragons living in it but (laughs) they had to be evicted temporarily so (laughs) 
Yeah, it's <laughs> it sounds like sounds like it's hard being a water dragon. <laughs> yeah, well, I go, I I handed it over to them, and then I t- <laughs> I feel a bit bad because I handed it over to them, and then I said, oh no, actually, I need to borrow it again. Can you? Can you guys move out? And then I'm, <laughs> um, the water dragons are in um, the place that I'm living now, but the tree is actually not from from that place. So the tree actually has to return to where it came from in the first place. But yeah, I have been borrowing it for a while, the, the remains of it in pieces. So it's hard being an artist. <laughs> I'm having a moral, I'm having a moral, moral dilemma about oh, you know, using materials too. I think it's such a you know, paint obviously is, is problematic in itself. Um, I'm diverging. Well, look, I was so struck by your poem. Now, I don't know whether you'd be happy to read it to us now. And of course, I will, with your permission, include the text on the Story Archaeology page. Uh, I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to read it now. I mean, I think, I, I don't think my pronunciation is going to improve, <laughs> I'm afraid. It's your poem. Yeah. I just uh, want to apologise in, in advance for my bad pronunciation. <laughs> it's, been, it's a bit of a sal- it's a, a salvage job, the poem. Often these things come from um, collections of, of, of things from, from many places. So the poem that I've written here has been alphabetized, and that's just a, a form that I've, I've been using. A for alum, Anamain and Brutabut, breaking open of poems and diligent teaching. Kethri, Strotha, Dirk, Aixi, Koya, Komya, Ingenalak, Dihtal, Dokheneb, Dihimi, Dihimi, Er for Era, Enek, Fella in in Rufus Fili Fili Fourteen streams of scholarship Granddaughter of the sea Great knowledge and chanting Great knowledge of enlightenment History and genealogy E for Edo Edna Boyd Ufogroma Edna Lerme and Lanamnai, Imboth, Forznai, Imboth, Graina, Imos and Tichtal, Meter and Judgment, Borigen, O for On, Olam, Olav, Palm Knowledge of Enlightenment, Poetry Likes Making Patterns, Purity of the Hand and Partnership, Purity of the mouth and learning. Rakali. Recital from the fingertips. Reciting from heads. Science and integrity. Sia. Shinan. Spiare. Thru. Sweet cauldron of the five trees. Taken the heart out of a good field. The well of the generous woman. Tenem Leida and Leofosital. Tree alphabet. U for Ura. Thanks loads. And I'll put the text up. And I must admit, uh, the moment you said taking the heart out of a good field, 
I remember the day that that old boy from up the road came and looked to where I planted my trees in a circle and said, yes. I, he said, you've taken a, taken the heart out of a good field there, missus. I know. <laughs> I forgot about that. And yet, you know, that field is still there and it's still, it's still a bit reedy, but, uh, yep. Yeah, and, it's used for everything. Look, that that is fantastic. And you've given me it just as such a nice... I've got to go to Australia again soon. <laughs> but it's been great talking with you, Claire. And I'm looking forward to seeing your, you know, pictures from your next uh, exhibition. And we'll keep in touch. And um, wow, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember... On www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions, with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>